Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, along with my co-host Eric Raskin and the United States, I am Kieran Mulvaney in Canada, eh? And the podcast is going to be a little bit longer in duration because uh, some of the words, um, as a result of this now being a half-Canadian entity, are going to have to have U's inserted and Z's replaced <laughs> with S's. And that that just doesn't happen just like that. You know, that takes time. <laughs> I understand why when writing out the words, it would make them longer. But in actually pronouncing them, does it, is oh, it translate oh, into yeah. the pronunciation? Well, and also don't forget that um, uh, there's the metric system involved as well, of course. <laughs> oh, right. You're right. I forgot to factor that part in. <laughs> So, <laughs> all right, but budget accordingly, uh, listeners. So you, you've mentioned uh, this uh, this trip uh, that has brought you to Canada currently uh, a few times on the podcast in recent weeks, um, and I've mostly been thinking about it from a what will we do with the podcast while you're gone perspective, and not a what is Kieran doing on this trip perspective because. Well, humans are self-centered, and I am more or less a human. Uh, but you got my attention with regard to the details of your trip when we were discussing it off-air a few days ago. You were going to be seeing corpses of cannibals. Now I'm interested. Uh, Kieran, please expound <laughs> for the folks at home. Well, important nuance, I'll be seeing the grave sites of corpses of cannibals. Ah, or, you, or, won't, you won't see the, the corpses, actual corpses. <laughs> and in fact, the corpses of people who were cannibalized. I don't know that they were actually, or at least partly oh, cannibalized. Okay, I'm not right. sure that they were doing any, because they died first. Right, yep, so, that adds up. It adds up. So, um, uh, yes, so if I'm actually seeing like corpses of cannibals, I'm probably seeing cannibals, and then the trip has all gone horribly wrong. But um, <laughs> So, uh, as regular listeners or, or my social media followers uh, know, you know, boxing's my job, or rather, reporting on boxing is my job, important distinction. <laughs> right. um, but my great passion is the polar regions, the Arctic and the Antarctic. And by the time you guys actually listen to this, I will be on a ship in the Northwest Passage, which is a winding, difficult to navigate channel across the Canadian Arctic archipelago. And when conditions are absolutely perfect, it can connect the Atlantic and the Pacific. And that was along this holy grail of explorers. Um, but many died, particularly in the 19th century, in search of it. And their ships, they'd, they'd head off in there. Their ships would get crushed in the ice. Their crews would die of scurvy and cold. And one very famous expedition perished. Um, it disappeared in 1845. All its, all its members were probably dead by 1847. And just a few years ago, its ships were found. Um, and it's the remnants of that expedition that I'll be visiting, as well as you know, just exploring like the Arctic, uh, as one is wont to do. It's a fantastic opportunity, but it's also slightly depressing because the reason it's now possible to steam relatively easy and relatively frequently into the, the Northwest Passage um, is because it's a lot less icy than it was for entirely natural reasons, of course. Right. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so it's either way, it should be, as I said, people who have been interested in the Arctic have wanted to you know, spend time in the Northwest Passage for, for a long time. I certainly have. Um, it should be a great experience. I'm hoping to write a lot about it. And I'm very grateful to Adventure Canada who invited me to go join them on this trip. Very cool. Sounds like a sounds like a really fun trip, and I'm uh, I'm mostly just picturing the opening scene of National Treasure when uh, Nicolas Cage is, discovers a ship somewhere up in the Arctic. Uh, ah. uh, everything for me just relates to movies. I, I don't know how things happen in real life, but uh, well, that's, that's especially what I'm Nick Cage movies. <laughs> yeah. Very bad attempt. And I'm only remembering that one because I re I watched it recently uh, with my son. Ah. Nor normally, I, on my own, I would never seek out a Nicolas Cage movie. Ah, but the beauty of it is, is given his later career path, like you can actually watch a movie, a Nick Cage movie a day <laughs> with him until he's like 30. Anyway, so uh, notwithstanding the last couple of minutes, this is a bit of an interesting episode in many ways. Uh, 
as we have basically no fights to preview for next weekend, um, but we will briefly look ahead a week. Uh, there are a couple of items of news that we will discuss. And we do have a few cards from this past weekend to look back on, including one in particular. Uh, we said there was no question about the unofficial main event of the past weekend, and so it proved as Vasily Lomachenko dropped, nearly stopped Luke Campbell en route to a wide unanimous decision atop a interesting and frequently controversial card at the O2 Arena in London. Um, Campbell had some moments, but in the end there was no doubt at all, at least from the perspective of the ringside judges who saw Lomachenko winning by scores of 119-108, 119-108, and 118-109. Uh, Eric, first things first, how did you score the fight? I had it ever so slightly closer than the judges, 117-110, uh, giving Campbell both of the first two rounds and then one round later in the fight. There were probably three or four rounds in this fight that you could say were close enough to score either way. And really, the first round was the only one all fight that I thought was a clear Campbell round. So... I can't really take major issue with the 119-108 cards, even if I think they're a bit wide. Um, but what, what did we say about this fight last week? Stylistically, Campbell should give Loma problems for two, three, four yeah. rounds, and then Loma takes over. Uh, however you scored the first few rounds, it certainly felt close through four, and then got increasingly one-sided as Loma settled in and adjusted to the reach and activity of Campbell and started doing Loma things. Um, you like to joke about how Lomachenko is not of this planet. Uh, and in this fight, we saw him joke, look... Says. <laughs> right. <laughs> Semi-joke, uh, right. I guess. Yeah. Um, in this fight, we saw him look extraterrestrial at times, but also look very human at other times. And that's actually been the way of it since he moved up to mm. lightweight in 2018. This is the third fight out of four, Anthony Corolla being the exception, in which Lomachenko had some struggles before ultimately winning in decisive fashion. Now, you and I have both agreed the last couple of years that Lomachenko is the best fighter in the world, pound for pound. But he does keep having these semi-struggles when he faces world-class lightweights. Any wavering on your pound-for-pound pound assessment after this fight? No, or at least not yet, um, because I think we're really grading him against himself at this stage. You know, uh, you know, when we talk about, and you're right to say it, semi-struggles against world-class lightweights, where, uh, you know, apart from the Pedraza fight, and Pedraza's a tough guy, uh, we're talking about still knocking out Jorge Linares and dropping, right. stopping, and and almost shutting out Luke Campbell. Uh, you know, and I think I got the impression that, you know, most cards were basically the same as yours. So 117, 110 seemed to be mostly uh, in line with what most folks felt. And look, and if, say, uh, Tiafimo Lopez had done that, we'd be singing his praises as, the, as an incredible talent. And no, that's yeah. not analogous because Lopez has far less experience and less is rightly expected of him. But it's simply because we expect so much of Lomachenko and people like me, as you said, set him on an alien pedestal. Um, you know, I, I think it's instructive to look at British media coverage of this fight, which I was doing a bit this morning. And it might perhaps have been expected to make an excuse or two or argue that maybe the fight was closer than it was. But basically... You know, it was almost universally praising Campbell for his tremendous effort, but marveling at the otherworldly performance of a fighter that they'd never had a chance to see operate in person on their shores before. Um, so that said, I do like your description of his being extraterrestrial at times and human at times. I, I think that's a function not of age of any or anything, but as you mentioned, you know, of him topping out at 135 pounds. Um, a couple years back, 
when there was some casual chatter about him maybe facing Terence Crawford at some catchweight, uh, we asked him about it in, in one HBO fighter meeting, and, and he looked at us like we were idiots and said <laughs> something to the effect that if you want to see us fight, it'll have to be on PlayStation. Um, he was he was fully aware, and he was fighting at 130 then. Uh, he was fully aware that you know he could maybe go up another weight division, and that'd be it. Um, I, look, if he's occasionally struggling a smidgen more at times now than he was a couple years ago, I think there's a couple factors. First, he's more frequently fighting the likes of Linares and Campbell, who are better than, say, Jason Sosa or Rocky Martinez, or what was left of Rocky Martinez when Lomachenko faced him. And he's meeting opponents now who are big enough to withstand, at least for longer, some of his shots. Um, It's funny, I was thinking about this, because I think in some for, for guys at that level, in some ways, there's no winning, right? If he was staying at 130 and just knocking guys over still, there'd be always a section of the fan base that was clamoring him for move, to move up to 135 and test himself. And now he's doing that and doing so less spectacularly and enough to maybe allow the pack to close to him a little, but still by really clear, clear, clear distance, yeah. there's a little bit of, oh, well, I guess he's not that great after all. Um, so I think, do we punish him for that in our rankings, for, for moving up to a weight division where he's disadvantaged somewhat? Or do we reward him for it? I think the latter. Um, although I do wonder whether in the long term it's the best thing for the longevity of his career because being up again at the very upper limits of your you know physical sort of size and ability up against these guys who can take your punches more and can hit you harder and have more effect on you, one suspects it's probably going to take a year or two off his career at the very top level. Yeah. So anyway, so that's what I think. And obviously, I'm somewhat sort of wedded to Vasily Lomachenko being <laughs> number one. Um, but what about you? Do you? Is that sort of where you're thinking? Yeah, I'm not changing my rankings, ultimately. But I was wavering at some points during the fight as it was going on, during some of Lomachenko's less impressive mm-hmm. rounds. The thought crossed my mind that, you know, I'm not sure if this guy is actually better pound for pound than Terrence mm-hmm. Crawford right now. Um And that comes back to my piping hot take from earlier in the year uh, that I do believe we are past the absolute peakiest, primiest prime of Lomachenko, uh, whereas Crawford seems to be right in his prime. So is 98% Lomachenko better than 100% Bud? I'm not really sure, but Mm. he did just turn back another quality fighter, as you said, and ultimately wasn't that close, as you said. So I'm not going to change my order. Um, What it will take is probably Crawford beating a legit top-level guy to take the pound-for-pound title. I don't want to uh, sort of give it to him by default if I don't have to. Uh, I've been over the mehness of Crawford's opposition before. Uh, It's certainly been very meh in 2019, you know, Amir Khan and from what we're hearing, probably Kowalowskis next. That's just not Mm. cutting it. So I truly am on the fence about which guy is better right now. Could go either way, but uh, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with what I have. Um, stat- keep the status quo. I'll need either a more pronounced stumble from Lomachenko or a semi-meaningful win from Crawford before I reverse right. my order. Right, and I think it's important to, to emphasize when we talk about this. We we both think both guys are terrific, right? Absolutely. Like outstandingly good prize fighters. It's just it's not like a, a case of dissing one or, or it's just a case of relative to each other. They're both fantastic, fantastic fighters. So. Mm-hmm. 
Um, anyway, uh, getting back to the particulars of that of Saturday's fight in London. Um, so it was an interesting. You, you talked about it already about how there were a couple of different phases, and you know there was a little bit of chess match style boxing, and and there was some real drama, um, and there were some rounds that really stood out. Uh, there was the fifth when Lomachenko hurt Campbell to the body late in the round, had him in, in some real trouble, it seemed, but ran out of time. Uh, there was the seventh, and it's actually both fighters appeared a little dazed. Um, and then, of course, there was there was the eleventh in which Campbell tasted the canvas. Did did you? think that a stoppage was imminent on any of those occasions as i noted on twitter i made a bet that the fight would go over 8.5 rounds and i wasn't feeling too great about it at the end of the fifth <laughs> uh lomachenko really hurt him to the body um and by the way uh clearly andre ward listens to this podcast because he correctly said this time that quote nobody likes it to the body he's learning <laughs> good for andre yeah there um but if Lomachenko had about 15 more seconds there, he might have finished Campbell. Um, but Campbell bounced back admirably. The seventh round was thrilling. I really do believe Lomachenko was hurt for a moment there. And then he came back and rocked Campbell. But neither was close to getting knocked out in that moment. Uh, but then, yeah, when Campbell went down in the 11th, I thought he was cooked and Lomachenko was going to finish him off. All credit to Campbell for hanging in there. I definitely think his stock went up in defeat yeah. because he won a few rounds, made it an entertaining fight, and always fired back every time Lomachenko landed something big. Yeah. So let's talk about what comes next for Lomachenko. They're saying it's going to be him versus the Richard Comey Teofimo Lopez winner, and he's also talking about moving back down to 130, perhaps. Do you give Comey or Lopez, whoever wins there, much chance against him? And... Should he indeed move down? Is he pushing it, hanging around as an undersized lightweight this long? Boy, that second point's a really interesting one. I, I, I mean, he's been at 135, what did you say, a year and a bit now, right? Yeah, and about four, a year and a four half. Four fights. Yeah. yeah. Um, and look, and he's obviously in ridiculous shape, and he's always in ridiculous shape. He doesn't get fat between fights or anything. Um, but he's not a big man, and when you stand next to him, he doesn't necessarily feel like you know a lightweight. He, he feels, you know, more physically substantial than our BFF Gary Russell Jr., but, right. but you know, lightweight is pushing it. And I imagine he could probably make 130 easily. But, you know, to get to that point, there does come a point where you, where you just have, where your body suddenly has gotten used to having a certain muscle mass, and you're mm. used to carrying a certain amount of weight, and he's now... He's past that magic point. He's 31 now. So he, there comes that point at which it would be, I would imagine, increasingly difficult even for for somebody like him to, to do that. So especially as, if we're to go down to 130, there are some pretty darn good young young guns potentially waiting for him down there. So so I think that's intriguing. I, I actually agree with the premise of, of the, the question that if he's going to do that, if he's going to do it, go back down to 130, he should certainly do it sooner rather than later. Yeah. Um, uh, and as for Comey and Lopez, you know, I haven't really sort of fully dug into to that contest yet. But at the moment, I think my inclination, based on what we've seen of those two lately, I might make Comey a slight favor at the moment against Lopez to be the guy who faces Lomachenko. But I don't think I'd give him the better odds of the two against Lomachenko, if you know what I mean. You know, it's a real styles make fights thing. And while I certainly wouldn't make him even even money against, against Vasily, um, Lopez intrigues me in that contest because... For me, he's the only conceivable foe who fights with, while he fights with a different style than Lomachenko, he fights in that same kind of freedom from conventionality. He has that kind of unpredictable, non-formulaic rapidity yeah. that, that Lomachenko does. And I find that an intriguing matchup for that reason, because 
you know, Lomachenko is used to dissecting more conventional boxes. Lopez would be the first person to give Lomachenko a look that he hasn't really seen before. And so, like I said, I wouldn't make him the favorite at all. But if he can get past Comey, I would be interested in that fight. And I, I think that would be a genuinely interesting one. Agree. Um, anyway, so uh, we've been talking about how well we kind of plotted <laughs> the main event. Um, so we'll skip past uh, the co-main very rapidly. Uh, we talked about uh, the Alexander Povetkin Huey Fury bout and how it had us intrigued. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. We'll strike that conversation from the record. I think probably uh, Povetkin winning a 12-round decision by unanimous scores of 117-111, and it was a bit of a chore to watch. As Well, one thing we did say is we did say occasionally Povetkin fights are a bit of a chore to watch, but um, anything to comment on before we get to the more intriguing of the main undercard bouts? Not much. Fury just doesn't have an appealing style. Uh, you no. said that we, we said that about Povetkin. I think it's even more true of Fury. Yeah. And he's not a top-level heavyweight. He's a B-level guy getting pushed because of his last name. He is to Cousin Tyson as Marvin Berry is to his cousin Chuck. Uh, <laughs> Tyson Fury sells out stadiums. Huey Fury should be playing high school dances, I think. Um, Povetkin still has uh, still has something left at age 39. And he doesn't look 39, but he looks physically exactly no. the same as he did 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he... He is, comma, what he is at this point. Uh, won't beat any of the top five guys. Still belongs firmly in the second five. And he might have a few decent years left if his handlers keep putting him in with the Huey Furies and not the Tyson Furies. Right, right. Um, well, so if the heavyweights were dull, the flyweight certainly were not. Uh, this, this was a bit of a bizarre one, this. So England's Charlie Edwards was defending an alphabet belt against Julio Cesar Martinez from Mexico. And in the third round, Martinez hurt Edwards with a torrent of shots, knocked him down, and then he appeared to score an upset KO when Edwards took the full count from referee Mark Lyson. But the blow that really did Edwards in was a left of the body that landed well after he dropped to his knees. I mean, it was clearly a foul. Uh, in seeing it in real time, really, it was clearly a foul. But mm -hmm. Lyson either missed it or he ignored it. And then the title changed hands until... That paragon of virtue, WBC President Mauricio Suleiman got involved. Um, the British Boxing Board of Control does not use replays. A, a very few number of, of commissions have started to do that. Nevada's one under certain circumstances. The British do not. But the WBC says that it does. I'm not quite sure how that would work. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, the, the point is that apparently the British Boxing Board let Suleiman dictate the outcome and it was changed to a no contest. Was that the right ruling? That is a complicated question. Because, it is, <laughs> because, no, it wasn't the correct ruling, but it wasn't the most incorrect possible ruling either. Right. Uh, right. Here's what should have happened. Martinez knocks Edwards down. Martinez steps around and fires a heavy shot under the ribs that was just so completely blatant. Uh, yep. Like we've all seen those shots where you can't tell in real time, you know, was his knee quite right. down or had the punch started before he touched down? And then you see the replay and, oh yeah, that's a foul. As you said, this was so completely obvious in real time. I can't begin to fathom what the ref was thinking. Yep. You see that punch land. And that was clearly the punch that knocked Edwards out. The legal ones didn't have him rolling around in agony. Um, but you see that punch land and you call timeout. You send yep. Martinez to a neutral corner. You tell the judges to count the knockdown, but also to take a point or maybe two from Martinez. 
and you tell Edwards he has five minutes to recover. If he does, fight continues. If he can't recover, then you make a judgment call about whether the foul was intentional, and if not, it's a no contest, and if so, it's a disqualification. And it was intentional, in my view. Martinez had to have known the guy was down, and he threw the punch anyway. But the fact is, the ref mishandled it, and that prevented us from getting the correct outcome of this fight, which is that the fight should have continued, because it seemed to me, within a minute or two, Edwards would have been okay to fight on. All that said... Clearly, a Martinez knockout win to take the belt was the most wrong possible outcome. <laughs> so I'm kind of glad they reversed it, but it's the way they reversed it that troubles Agreed. me. Since when can the sanctioning body president overrule the commission on the spot? You know, Suleiman was correct, but the procedure was so completely improper. Even if a no contest is a more correct result than a Martinez win, and it definitely is. It's such a dangerous precedent, allowing the sanctioning body to change the result on the spot instead of doing so on appeal after the fact. Do you agree with me that this is worrisome, seeing Suleiman have the power to change a referee's decision on the spot? I, I, I do very, very much. Um, and of course, the other mistake that Lyson made was standing on the other side of Martinez as Edwards went down. and not Because fighters are going to keep throwing a punch until a, until a referee pulls him off. Um, right. So, but anyway, but that all, you know, apart... This was overruled because Suleiman was in the building mm-hmm. and watching the replays on the big screen yes. and listening to the crowd boo. And that is a BS way to administer an admittedly BS sport. Um, <laughs> and and, and as, as you said, look, it's possible for two things to be right here, for a no contest or a disqualification to be the correct decision, but also for, you know, the way in which... that decision was made to be wrong so yeah look the local commission has to have primacy you know you can't suddenly start overturning results and decisions because you know the mob is unhappy and the emperor decides that he you know he wants to quell a riot or something but um if there's an instant replay and official use and if it is supposed to cover these kind of things fine if not then there is a post-fight appeals process that has been used for goodness knows how many fights and how many fighters and it doesn't always work out well a lot depends as we all know on you know the power of the promoter and so on and so forth but there would have been the opportunity for edwards and for eddie hearn to appeal the result and they would likely have produced the same result i suspect because mm-hmm. i think it's very hard to see how you wouldn't right. but at least in the process one of the sort of few tattered rules of this dystopian excuse for a sport would actually be followed for once. So, yeah, probably the right result, definitely the wrong process. Yeah. All right, let's move on to a couple of other weekend fight cards in Minneapolis on Fox on Saturday night. Arislandi Lara continued this mid-to-late career run he's on as an entertaining (laughs) fighter, uh, dominating Ramon Alvarez and stopping him in the second round. Lara said he wanted revenge for Ramon's brother Canelo, scoring a close and controversial decision win over him a few years back, back when Lara was still boring as hell. And uh, (laughs) Lara certainly got that indirect revenge, knocking Alvarez into the ropes and then following up with a flurry to prompt referee Mark Nelson's intervention. Was this more a case of Lara looking good or Alvarez looking bad? So first things first, full credit to Lara, uh, who did what he had to do. He showed up in shape. So he was you know, one of two fighters in the ring <laughs> who did that. He boxed well. He saw the state of his opponent. He figured out what punches to use to open his man up. And then he opened him up and he went for the finish, which maybe four years ago, even with 
uh, Ramon Alvarez in front of him, he might not have done, right? Uh, this time he's like, yeah, screw it, I'm getting out of here. Yeah. And he went for the finish and he got the finish. Um, but it is, you know, watching, watching it that, uh, on Saturday night, it is remarkable how boxing can give us, you know, Vladimir and Vitaly Klitschko and Juan Manuel and Rafael Marquez and Rafael and Gabriel Ruelas. And it could also give us Manny and Bobby Pacquiao mm. and Saul and Ramon Alvarez. Uh, Ramon was everything his brother never is. Hugely unprofessional. Weighing uh, 4.6 pounds overweight. And then using the excuse, oh, but our scale was, I guess we thought we were on weight. Our scale just wasn't calibrated properly, which is just... <laughs> no, I'm not an athlete, and I know when I'm five pounds overweight. So no, and and look, and he looks at best diffident in his approach to the whole contest. Um, this is one of those fights. They happen sometimes, don't they? Like within seconds, I was sitting in my hotel room watching on on TV, and within seconds, I said to myself, "Oh, this is not going to last long." Al- Alvarez right. is going. It was really easy to see, wasn't it? From like the opening couple of punches, right? Um, his stance was wrong. His body language was wrong. He had his head straight up. He had no defense. He didn't look very interested in being there. Um, he's, he's clearly in paycheck collecting mode of his career at this point, Ramon Alvarez. I mean, we said when we, when we previewed it, I can't remember the exact phrase you used, but you were just like, this is kind of dreck for a main event. And that was when we thought Alvarez would be in shape. So right. <laughs> anyway, but full credit to Lara for doing what he had to do. Um, and, and he gets to sort of keep on keeping on. Yeah, he he does. But the the Alvarez side of the equation, I mean, I, yeah, you're right that a few seconds into the fight, you, you, you knew it was going to be a disaster. But we also knew uh, last week when I reminded you he had been knocked out by Brandon Rios recently. That's true. Uh, that's so true. maybe you didn't need to see the opening bell that's ring. Um, yeah. As far as Alvarez missing weight, that's outrageous. It's unprofessional. You know, I forgive a guy when he misses by a half pound or something. Not when he's 4.6 pounds off. Uh, but... Whether he's 158 pounds or 154 pounds, he's still Ramon Alvarez. Uh, it's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's whether he's Canelo's completely unworthy yes. brother who only exactly. gets fights because he's Canelo's completely unworthy brother. I think that's how the saying goes, right? Um, <laughs> exactly. And I don't mean to disrespect him. He's a fighter. They all deserve yep. some measure of respect. But he can be as big as he wants. Lara is always going to be light years better than him. Yep. And by the way, I have to quote our recent guest, Raul Marquez. He had maybe the tweet of the weekend after watching this crap. Quote, I can beat Alvarez, and I've been away from boxing for 10 years. I don't even think Raul was joking. I think I think he believes it, and, and I might believe it. <laughs> nice. Um, in the co-main, uh, Showbox alum Sebastian Fondora, all six foot seven and 154 pounds of him, uh, suffered the first quasi-blemish on his pro record. He was held to a split decision draw by Jamonte Clark. Uh, Fondora drops to 13-0-1. Clark is at 14-1-1. Uh, Clark's team seemed happier at the end, uh, perhaps because expectations were lower, but the scores were a little bit over the map. Or at least one 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 judge was was way out. Yeah. Uh, ninety eight ninety two to Fondora. Uh, the other two were close. Ninety six ninety four to Clark. Ninety five ninety five. Um, was that the right result? Do you think? And also, Clark said he liked the rematch, and Fondora said he was open to it. But should he just move on in search of a better style matchup? Uh, so as far as whether it was a good result, I wasn't scoring round by round, but. Yeah, I'd say good result. The draw seemed fair. The 96-94 card for Clark appeared fine. 
The 98-92 card for Fundora, not so much, although I guess I can see how you get there if you're a judge. There's so many close rounds. Yeah, there are a lot of close rounds, and particularly if you're the kind of judge who scores those close rounds based on which guy is coming forward and making the Mm. fight, maybe you can get to eight rounds for Fundora. Um, This is a bit of a come down for those of us on the Fundora bandwagon, although Jamonte Clark is a good boxer, and Mm -hmm. this was, in retrospect, a step up for Fundora from the guys he's been fighting. I'd say this is a rematch I'd like to see happen, but not immediately. Yeah. Uh, Fundora's 21. Clark is young, too, by the way. He's only 24. Let Fundora get two or three wins in the next six months against other opposition. Then maybe you come back and do the rematch as a showbox main event next spring and see if Fundora has progressed and can solve Clark. Uh, I'd l- love to see that uh, on our network. Gordon Hall, get on it. Uh, yeah. th- that's the kind of showbox fight I would be clearing my calendar for. There you go. Uh, one other fight to discuss. Last week, we mentioned Jeff Horn, asked whether he'd been somewhat overlooked and what his career prospects were. We were reasonably bullish, I think it's fair to say. I think it's also fair to say those prospects are somewhat dimmed after he suffered a ninth round knockout to compatriot Michael Zarafa in Bendigo, Australia. Kieran, in circumstances like this, with a stoppage like this, we generally play how sadistic is Eric <laughs> feeling today. Uh, but let's put you on the hot seat this time. Actually, I suspect it's at best a tepid seat, as I don't think there's much doubt about the answer. Should the fight have been stopped earlier than it was? Yeah, absolutely should have been. Um, yeah, look, Horn had been taking something of a beating through the fight, but that beating really stepped up in the ninth. And after Horn went down pretty hard and the referee sent Zarafa to a neutral corner, Horn hauled himself to his feet and with his hands down, staggered backward into the ropes. And the referee looked at that and decided that that was the sign of a man who wanted to continue and was able to continue. Uh, Look, referees need to know body language. We talked a few weeks back when discussing stoppages, how when a fighter's on the ropes and his head is flying around like he's a bobblehead, that's an entirely different situation from when he's got his hands up and blocking a a bunch of punches. And when your guy is staggering backwards with his hands down, um, that's, you know, that's pretty high on the, mm, maybe I shouldn't be letting this go on sign. Uh, as he was waved back into the fight, Zarafa unloaded on in some more horn began to go down again. And even then I thought the referee stepped in somewhat tentatively to stop it. And I didn't see this, but Ryan Sangalia of the ring tweeted that it looked like horns corner was standing on the ring apron as if to stop it, but the referee didn't see them. Um, mm. and as Ryan correctly pointed out in that situation, you don't just politely wait there and you start throwing shit in the ring or 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 you leap in the ring yourself or you do something because you know sometimes in those situations especially when you're exhausted after it's been a tough fight and you've been getting beaten up um and then you take those extra few punches those are what can really do you in um so uh yeah so you know those are the kind of moments that can certainly uh end the careers or certainly shorten them that's for sure yeah i mean i'm, I'm sadistic i'm not that sadistic exactly. uh, all right let's move on to some upcoming fights uh we've been noting the quiet august schedule all month but august was positively jam-packed with must-see fistic action compared to next weekend <laughs> where we have absolutely nothing to preview uh, at least nothing that's on us tv or streaming there is a ring tv card on thursday a Cornelius Bundridge fight in New Orleans and a strawweight title fight in the Philippines between Sammy Salva and Padro Tataran. So, yeah, uh, consider those fights as previewed as they're going to be on the Showtime <laughs> Boxing Podcast. But there are some notable fights the following weekend, the weekend of September 14th. And Kieran, as you'll be off fighting polar bears uh, while I'm previewing those in greater detail, I'm going to step back and give you a free swing to let us know which of that weekend's fights you're most disappointed to be missing. 
Um, so yeah, so obviously I'm on level Tyson Fury against Otto Valin because Fury's important to watch whoever he's up against. Um, even though this isn't necessarily the, the matchup to most get your pulse racing. Um, Emmanuel Navarrete is the co-main. And as we were saying, I think maybe even only last week, um, he's putting together a fantastic string of results. Um, Jaime Munguia fights the same night. He's always good TV. Uh, promising prospect Ryan Garcia is his co-main. So those are all kind of, you know, they're fights that I'm like, yeah, it'll be nice to watch them. Um, but the one that I'm really interested in is this is zone card on um, ooh, Friday the 13th. Oops. From ooh. New York. Um, uh, the main event is Devin Haney, who's on a roll after his last outing. Uh, there's a women's fight that should be terrific. Heather Hardy against Amanda Serrano. I like Heather Hardy. She's a great interview. We've had her on our previous podcast. Um, I really like watching her uh, box. But damn, Serrano can really, really, really fight. Um, and I think Heather Hardy's going to be up against it there. But... I am especially interested. Like, I wish I could find a signal on top of an iceberg so I could stream <laughs> it interested in Daniel Roman against Murajan Akhmadalia for a 122-pound title. Um, mm. Romaman, folks may remember, was earlier this year in a tremendous scrap against TJ Doheny. And uh, he's a first-rate, world-class, and underappreciated talent. But I love Akhmadaliev. Um I selected him in my rising talents draft a couple of weeks ago, and I think he's special. Um, Roman is the perfect test to see whether that's right or not. Uh, I think that'll be a fantastic fight, and that's the one uh, above all the others that I'm, I'm sorry to be missing. Yeah, that that one should be real good. Um, I would add uh, add more here, but I don't want to use up my material for next week. I'll just say, not the greatest Mexican Independence Day weekend in modern boxing no. history that you're missing. No. All right, so uh, we have a a few news items to look at, and let's kick off with some good news. Regis Progre confirming that his highly anticipated 140-pound unification and World Boxing Super Series final against Josh Taylor is back on after Progre settled his differences with WBSS organizers. That contest will take place on October 26th at the same O2 Arena where Lomachenko just beat Campbell. Also on the card, Rick Sterko, better known to some as Ricky Burns, uh, who had been discussed as a possible replacement opponent for a fellow Scott Taylor if the Progre fight didn't happen, will take on Lee Selby of Wales. And in heavyweight action, Derek Chisora will meet Joseph Parker. We've discussed the main event before and we'll do so again, but any quick thoughts on this card now that Progre Taylor is back on and we know a couple of the key undercard fights? Uh, obviously, the great thing is the main event sorted. Uh, a legitimately 50-50 battle between two really good young talents at the top of their division, the top of their games. Um, and it's supported by a pair of contests uh, with veterans who've been at or near the top um and who are really popular and 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 solid professionals the crowd is going to be super familiar with all of them um they all have followings um yeah we'll talk about it a lot more as we get closer but the crowd is going to be seriously rocking at the o2 that night um looking at looking that's going to be a heck of a night uh and that so yeah uh good card and really delighted that that main event has been salvaged um two weeks before that Alexander Usyk who wins the um the gif of the weekend did you see that (laughs) I sure did Man, that was great. I love Usyk so much. Uh, he will be making his much-anticipated heavyweight debut uh, in Chicago. The expectation had long been that that would be against Carlos Takam, who he was originally scheduled to meet on May 25th until entering his bicep. But Takam changed promoters. His purse demands apparently changed. So instead, reportedly, Usyk now seems set to face Tyrone Spong. Who the hell, Eric, is Tyrone Spong? Spong is uh, one person who has never been in my kitchen. 
he's, <laughs> he's someone I'd never heard of until his name was mentioned a couple of days ago as the Usyk opponent. Uh, but I did a little research, a little quick research. He's 14-0 and with 13 knockouts. And he actually fought this weekend, knocking out one Jason Minda in two rounds in Mexico. Apparently, he was an accomplished kickboxer and MMA fighter who transitioned to boxing four years ago when he was already in his late 20s. He's now 33, and I have no idea if he's any good at boxing, but I suspect he's a good bit worse at it than Carlos Takam and a whole lot worse <laughs> at it than Oleksandr Usyk. And Spong is just a weird name. I, I do the Usyk crazy bug-eyed face every time I see the word Spong in print. Uh, meanwhile, we mentioned last week after Sergei Kovalev's win over Anthony Yard that a November bout with Canelo Alvarez seemed destined to be next. It didn't take long for the inevitable wrinkle to appear, with Kovalev reportedly balking at the planned November 2nd date. You did raise the question of whether Kovalev would be ready to go so soon after that tough fight with Yard. So do you think this is a legitimate ejection by Kovalev, or is he just jockeying for leverage? It's possibly both, right? Um, I mean, look, I obviously wasn't the one taking the punches from Yard. Um, right. And in an age where boxers fight so much less frequently, it's just entirely possible that... You know, Kovalev just simply doesn't want to get back into the gym yet, that he wants to spend a month or so with his family before getting back to work. Um, so in theory, he shouldn't need a as long of a camp immediately after a fight as he would do if he's out of the ring for several months. Um, but, you know, but I have no idea how he feels. Um, he knows his body and he knows, frankly, his mind. I think we underestimate and or don't even consider a lot the emotional toll it takes to get into camp and then fight a man who's trying to render you unconscious and then try to get yourself back into into that that probably takes a, a good bit of time to to sort of you know recover from as well um plus it's all a little bit of a classic heel canelo move right you lowball a possible opponent wait for him to exhaust himself in the grueling fight and then offer him the fight again for more money but you know with the caveat that it has to be in his backyard and only canelo's friends can come and it has to be tomorrow but um but Kovalev, and more importantly, main events, know that if Canelo's waited this long to make a move to confirm a fight, it's because Kovalev is the guy he wants. He's the only opponent who will really move the needle and distract from the fact that Canelo isn't fighting Triple G. And, you know, we talked we talk about Canelo's training camps, but if Canelo, uh, Kovalev's training camps, excuse me, but if Canelo's been prepping himself physically and psychologically to meet Sergey at 175 in, in a couple months, he's not going to want to force himself down to 160 to meet Demetrius Andrade in the same space of time. So right. Kovalev also knows he's in a position of strength here. Um, you know, he and main events don't want to bluff so hard that they play themselves out of the biggest payday of his career and the chance of the biggest win of his career. But they are fully entitled to, to, you know, to see what they can do here and say, hey, either the money amount moves or the date moves. Yeah, that, that's a good point that he is in a position here where he does have some leverage. And so I presume that that is exactly what he's doing, is playing up that leverage, as is his right. Uh, November 2nd is a tight-ish turnaround. Uh, may as well try to negotiate for a later day or see if he can't squeeze another half a million bucks out of the deal or something. Sure. That said, if indeed Kovalev ultimately passes on the fight, A, I'll be surprised. I don't think he's going to. And B... I will be really disappointed in him, and it'll say to me that he has no belief that he'll beat Canelo. Yeah. Um, you know, we're talking about a $10 million-ish payday at a point in your career where any fight could be your last. 
the notion that you can't go back into camp just a week or two after your last fight is ridiculous to me. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little less sympathetic and understanding th- than you are about this, even though you made some good points. We don't know what's going on in his head. We don't know exactly what that fight took out of him still. You're already in shape, so you don't have to have an intense camp from day one. You don't need to start sparring for a few more weeks unless you're suffering real physical symptoms from the yard fight. Like if Kovalev was actually concussed during the course of that fight Mm. and is slow to recover and having headaches, not feeling right, then okay, absolutely pass on the fight. Your health comes first. But short of that, if he's just physically sore, if it was just a, a tough fight and you were hoping for a month off before returning to camp. That's ridiculous. Suck it up. Spend one week with your family instead of a whole month and then go make $10 million and you're pretty much set for life after right. that. Right, right, But I'm just a more sympathetic, nicer person than you are, Eric. But you we are. knew that already. Uh, yeah, we I'm, knew that I, already. I'm sadistic Raskin for a reason, I guess. <laughs> exactly. All right, a quick dip into the mailbag before we go. Uh, Jay Lewis writes... <laughs> I like this. What was the greatest injustice in boxing history and why was it Hagler Leonard? Uh, Eric, I know you, I understand you know Jay Lewis, uh, IRL, as the kids say. Um, You want to address this one? Yeah, so uh, Jay Lewis, if that is your real name, and I happen to know it's not. uh, I had my doubts. (laughs) Yeah, Jay Lewis is the pseudonym that he started using when he started the website Hot Chicks with Douchebags many years ago, which is a wonderful internet deep dive if you have time, and he in fact spun it into a book and even an MTV show, uh, and uh, he's a, a friend of my brother's. And you're not uh, making any of this up. Are no, you? this is all true, absolutely <laughs> wow. true. Hotchickswithdouchebags.com still exists, uh, wow. and it was basically people would send him photos of douchey-looking guys out at the club with hot chicks, and he would post them and write funny captions. And it is understandable why he wouldn't want his real name attached to that. Um, but oh, uh, yeah, God, I love this. <laughs> yep. So anyway, he's a friend of my brother's, and uh, he is a big-time Boston sports fan. So he is asking this question about Leonard Hagler with full Boston fan bias. Uh, So first, I'll say it's not even close to the greatest injustice in boxing history. I scored it 7-5 for Leonard, and even if you scored it for Hagler 7-5, you have to admit he lost the first four rounds, and now you have to give him seven of the last eight, and even if you do... It was hardly a clear-cut win, just as it wasn't a clear-cut win for Sugar Ray. This was a close fight with a few really tough-to-score rounds. So, in my view, debate who won all you want, and people clearly still do 30-plus years later, but it is, at worst, a minor injustice. And here's the other thing. No Boston sports fan who has lived through this 2000s championship run <laughs> is ever allowed to complain about anything sports related ever. Uh, j- just as the, the anger over the Bill Buckner play and the 1986 collapse should have gone away when the Red Sox won the 2004 World Series, so should Leonard Hagler and the 80s and 90s Patriots Super Bowl losses and Len Bias and Cam Neely and whatever else you used to be sad about should have gone away by now. Uh, you have enough happy sports memories to last 10 lifetimes. Only Marvin Hagler himself gets to still harbor resentment over the Leonard Hagler decision. And uh, next time uh, Eric is in Massachusetts, we'll be adopting the pseudonym M. Ali. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> 
All right, that will do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Next week, and indeed the week after, we'll be back-to-back episodes of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and TBD, the most employed person in boxing. Um, (laughs) Fear not, Kieran fans, and I know there's one of you out there somewhere. Uh, We have pre-recorded a couple of segments with special guests, so you won't have to go entirely without me. Um, You'll find out exactly what Eric has in store for you next week. But until then, thanks for listening.